Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadaf. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. I'd ask the congregation to stand and please turn to Psalm chapter 3. As we will first pray and then read the Word of God for today's sermon titled, Trial, Trust, Triumph, Part 2. Psalm chapter 3. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our path and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Amen. Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, the NASB says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke. For the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves about me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Please be seated. So this is Trial, Trust, Triumph, Part 2. Last week in Part 1, we went from trial to trust. And we answered the central question, how can you endure trials? And the simple answer to that question was by faith. And there were three specific applications. Today, we're going to go from trust to triumph. And we're going to answer one central question. How do you triumph in trials? How do you triumph in trials? And we're going to discuss three specific answers. Now, to make sure everyone is well-oriented to where we are, we're going to start at Psalm chapter 3, verse 4. What happens in verses 1 to 3? King David, a king of Israel, flees from Absalom, his son, who is revolting against him. It is a coup. Absalom and the Israelites versus King David. King David writes Psalm number 3 in escaping from Absalom, his son, who is revolting against him. David looks around in the height of his trial. He finds bleakness, despair, and no hope. So he casts his gaze up to God, trusts in the Lord, leans upon him, and strengthens himself in God Almighty. And David, having faith in God and relying on his word and his promises, has a reason to hope in the height of adversity. So now David is on the battlefield, symbolically speaking, with his shield of faith up, God being his glory and God lifting up his head. What happens next? 
The next thing David says in Psalm chapter 3, verse 4 is, I was crying to the Lord with my voice. Crying comes from a root word in Hebrew, kara, which means to call, which means to shout. When God called the light day and the darkness night in Genesis 1, it's the same root word. When God called Moses in Exodus, it's the same root word. What's the point? This word has emphasis behind it. It has conviction. It has fervor. It has animation. It's a crying out to God where life and death is at stake. So this crying has conviction behind it. So when David casts his eyes upon God and he cries out to the Lord, he calls out to him, he lifts up his hands and says, my Lord, my God, and he shouts to the sovereign Lord. When David cries, when David communicates with the Lord, he's praying to him. So how do you triumph in trials? Here's the first answer. Here's the first of three Ps. How do you triumph in trials? You, number one, you have to pray your way out. Psalm 28, verses 1 to 2 says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me, for if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Psalm 34:15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Psalm 34, 17 says, The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. So how do you triumph in trials? You have to pray your way out. So what is prayer? Prayer is the act of petitioning, praising, giving thanksgiving, or confessing to God. Prayer is the inevitable end result of having faith in God. When you cast your eyes on God and trust in, rely upon Him, James tells us that faith without works is dead. So in a sense, prayer now is a work. It's something that stems from, from exudes from, a faith that is oriented and locked upon God. And because faith is never lazy, Prayer now is a work. You don't have faith in the midst of a trial, then stop. You don't have faith sitting on your couch at home watching TV. That faith now has real effects in real life. And one of those effects is prayer. Prayer teaches us our unworthiness. It's a revelation of hidden poverty. It's an application to divine wealth. Because the reason we are in a trial in the first place is because we don't have it all under control. Prayer is a source of strength for the daily race. So when we emerge from our prayer closets before the sun has come up, 
We are now invigorated by having communion and fellowship with God Almighty. Prayer equips human weakness with divine strength and gives the peace of God to troubled souls. So that's what prayer is. Now, why should you bother praying? You're asking me, preacher, you told me before God is sovereign. God has ordained the ends. He has also ordained the beginning. So if God has done all that, and God has it all, figure it out. What's the point? Why should I bother praying? Here's the answer. Yes, God has ordained the start. God has ordained the end. But he's also ordained the means. And the means is you praying. God never shies away from our reality. When his people, the Israelites, were liberated from Egyptian bondage, he didn't come down and extend his hand. He used a means, a mediator, Moses, that told Pharaoh, let my people go. When God's tabernacle in the wilderness, when the Israelites were liberated, was built, he didn't build the tabernacle. He commissioned men who used their own hands to build his holy sanctuary. So the reason why we pray is because it is the means by which God has ordained from you to go from trial to trust to triumph. And while the ungodly at the beginning of Psalm number 3 use their words to try and destroy David, they say there's no deliverance for you from God. God has forgotten about you. We now can in turn use our words through prayer to protect our souls. So how do you triumph in trials? You have to pray your way out. Now who is the prayer addressed to? It's addressed to God and to God alone. But specifically, who is this prayer going to be addressed to? If you look at Psalm number 3, six times in Psalm number 3, you see the word Lord. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Why is it all capitalized? Because this is a special name of God. In fact, if you've ever wondered why in your Bible, sometimes Lord is capital L, all the rest are lowercase. But sometimes all of them are caps. is because this is a translation of, the, of a special name of God Almighty. This Psalm number 3 actually begins by David saying, O Lord. The last line is, salvation is of the Lord. It starts and ends with the Lord. What does all this mean? Because whenever Lord is all capitalized, it is a particular translation of the revealed name of God. We have certain names we ascribe to God. We say Jehovah. We say Adonai. We say El Shaddai. We say the Sovereign One. Those are names that begin with us and we assign to God. But there's one special place in the Bible where God reveals from himself to us what his name is in Exodus. At the burning bush when God commissioned Moses. And God tells Moses, go into Egypt and let my people go. Moses says, hey, God, they're going to be a little bit skeptical. 
Who should I say sent me? How will they know that I'm legit? And God says, tell them, I am who I am sent you. And that is the special, particular, revealed name of God, which in Hebrew is represented by four letters. Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. The really fancy name for this word is the Tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton. What's the point of all this? Because if you want to pray like David, if you want to pray like Jeremiah, if you want to pray like Moses, if you want to pray a good old-fashioned Old Testament prayer, you're not just going to use the generic name God. You're going to use God's revealed name, which is yud Hey vav Hey. In other words, Yahweh. So in your prayer closet, when you're on your hands and knees, praying to God in the height of a trial, this name invokes the relationality of God. It's not some abstract God way out there. It's the God who extended his hand to make a covenant with Abraham, to free his people. The God who made a lasting covenantal promise. The God who is faithful even when his people are faithless. That's who Yahweh is. So the who you pray to is God. But in your prayers, you're going to use, just like David, the covenantal name of Yahweh. So we know what prayer is, why prayer is, why we pray, and who we pray to. How do we pray? In the midst of trial, and we're looking, we have our eyes set on triumph. How do we pray? Here's the answer. You have to tell the truth and be honest. Tell God exactly what is going on. Now, this may seem ridiculously obvious, but it's so obvious many people don't do it. So what do I mean? How do we pray? Tell the truth and be honest. David begins Psalm number 3 by saying, Oh Lord, how my adversaries have ganged up against me. Let's think about this. Does God really need David to tell him? Does God really need David to give him an update as to what's going on on, on earth? He doesn't. But in his revealed word, God gives us a map. God gives us a blueprint where we begin our lamentation. We begin our trial by actually calling it like it is and expressing to God what's going on. So you may be depressed. You pray, you say, God, hey, God, I'm depressed. You may be riddled with unbelief. You pray to God and say, God, I'm having a difficult time believing. You may be having suicidal thoughts. You may be thinking of taking your own life. So when you pray, you tell God the problem. You call it like it is. Because any therapist will tell you the sheer fact of when you release what's going on on the inside in and of itself is therapeutic. So when we're praying in trials, we have to mimic David in Psalm number three. We have to package all of our angst, all of our fears, all of our worry. We put it in a package, put a bow on it, and deliver it right to God's doorstep.
so we abandon our internal angst to God. Listen, there's nothing wrong in talking to your pastor. There's nothing wrong in talking to a therapist. There's nothing wrong in talking to a friend. But guess what? All those three people are not sovereign. So if you are willing to talk to someone who isn't sovereign, who can't end your trial, why would you not talk to God, who is sovereign and who can end your trial? I'm going to prove this idea of tell the truth and be honest. Psalm 79, which is a lament when the city of Jerusalem was being ransacked. The psalmist says, this is the psalmist talking about the enemies now. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. What is that? Calling it like it is, telling God what's going on. Psalm 79, 8. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. In other words, God, I feel crushed and overwhelmed. Psalm 86, 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Psalm 142, 1-4, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaints before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. In the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. That sounds like depression. And what is the psalmist doing? Packaging it and saying, here God, here you go. Listen. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by grace and kept by willpower. God made us. He knows how we work. If we as finite, fragile human beings lock up all these feelings and keep them in tight, they're going to hurt us, they're going to harm us, they're going to destroy us. God is telling us in his word. We call it like it is and reveal exactly what's going on, both with what we can see and both with what we can feel. So how do you triumph in trials? You have to pray your way out. The next thing David says is this. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. This is the icing on the cake. We pray in the height of our trials because the one that we pray to answers. It's not prayer for nothing. It's not prayer that is an empty vessel. Now consider the biblical context of what's going on here. When David wrote Psalm number 3, about 10 years prior, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah's husband. Here's a little insight. Back then in the Old Testament, this is before Christ, there was no atonement. There was no way for David to get rid of the guilt he incurred, of the moral debt owed to God because of his sin. You know why? Because the penalty for murder was death. The penalty for adultery was death. That was the atonement. That was the way to make good with God by you losing your own life. So look at the beauty of the sentence. 
God answers the murderer. God answers the adulterer. And he doesn't answer David from his just one notch to be good mountain. He answers David from his holy mountain, which reveals the grace, the steadfast love, and the loving kindness of Yahweh. So we need not tremble in the midst of a trial when we rejoice in a prayer hearing God. The next word is Salah, which as I explained last week means stop, it means pause, it means reflect. And when we find ourselves in the middle of a trial, there are two crucial questions we have to ask ourselves. The first is, why is this trial happening? And the second is, how does God want me to respond? The first question is, why is this trial happening? And the reason why we must ask ourselves this question is because if you are in a trial because of unconfessed, harbored sin, the only thing that will make the trial end is when you confess and repent. The psalmist validates this point on several occasions. Psalm 38, 3-5 says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. Psalm 38, 18 says, For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. So yes, our faith looks up on God, but when we find ourselves in the midst of a trial, we also have to look at ourselves in the mirror. We have to realize that we have to go see our great spiritual physician, the Holy Spirit, and make an appointment to have our spiritual vital signs checked. We we walk into the Holy Spirit's office, and when he asks you, why are you here? You say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Because I know my Father and my God, I'm not going to delude myself and think that I'm the good guy in this, that I'm completely innocent. So examine me thoroughly and make me well with the medicine of Jesus Christ. So the first question we ask ourselves in Salah is, why is this trial happening? The next question we have to ask ourselves is this, how does God want me to respond? We have to look up at God and ask the question, God, what are you trying to tell me? What message do you want me to get in the height of this adversity? Because listen, there are three parties watching you when you were in trial. There's the world, there's the devil, and there's God. The world is reading you as their Bible. 
They want to see if this so-called God guy is actually real, if this God actually works in real life. So they are reading you as their Bible to see what happens when a so-called Christian endures a trial, how they respond, how they act, what they do. Will they be confused, bitter, and angry, or will they have joy and peace? The devil is also watching you because the devil wants to use you as a pawn. The devil wants to use you to disgrace God so you turn away from your Lord. You curse him and you become angry and harbor malice towards God Almighty. But then there's God. Because God made you for his glory. That is your mission statement in life, to glorify God. And your trial never changes that mission statement. So as you look up and cast your eyes on God in the height of your trial, you have to ask yourself, God, what are you trying to tell me? How do you want me to respond? You have to ask yourself, how can God get the maximum amount of glory out of this trial so I don't cast my eyes away from him and my gaze is continually looking up? towards my sovereign Lord and creator. Because guess what? What does James 1 to 4 tell us? It says we should consider it joy when we encounter various trials. Why? Because trials test our faith, which leads to us having uh, perfection, lacking nothing. Meaning what? That God is using a trial in some instances to mold you and shape you, to make you more complete so that you lack nothing. So a very valid question you ask God during the height of your trial is, Lord, what am I lacking? What am I missing? What is in me that's deficient that you are trying to use this trial to make me more complete? Now, what does the next verse in James say? James 1.5. It says, if anybody lacks uh, wisdom, what should you do? You ask God. So if your knowledge is deficient and you're wondering, God, what are you trying to tell me? Simply ask through prayer, and he will be the one to answer your supplications. The next verse says, I lay down and slept, I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Now, this was written by David after he woke up the next morning, which means God, from his holy mountain, answers the prayer of a murderer. And then while David is defenseless sleeping like a baby, where any one of Absalom's men could come up and take him out, God, by his providence, watches over him while David was unconscious and couldn't mount a defense. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that praiseworthy? Because this brings us to our second point. How do you triumph in trials? You have to praise your way out. David begins this trial by having faith in God. That faith then animates prayer. Then what happens? Faith leads to prayer, which leads to David having a well-regulated mind, 
which allows him to sleep. Let me say that again. David has faith in God which then animates prayer, which therefore leads to a well-regulated mind, which allows him to have a good night's sleep. Listen, if you, are, if you have lived one day in real adulthood, there has been one night where you could not sleep where your mind was racing, where you were tossing and turning, where although you were remaining perfectly still, you were moving at a million miles a minute because in that instance, your thoughts are controlling you. You're not controlling your thoughts. But what David is telling us, faith animates prayer, leads to communion with God, which gives you a well-regulated mind. So now the peace of God gives you comfort. The peace of God gives you a sense of tranquility. So even in the middle of a hostile battlefield, you can lay your head down and sleep like a baby. As the Puritan Thomas Watson once said, the peace of God allows you to sleep in the mouth of a cannon. Praise be the name of the Lord. Many lie down and cannot sleep because of pains of body, anguish of mind, or alarms of fear. Yet we lie down in safety, knowing we are safe in the arms of the providence of God. Praise God. Because of a good night's sleep, David now wakes up well-rested so he can get up and do it over again the next morning. Praise be the name of the Lord. How do you triumph in trials? You have to praise your way out. When you find yourself in a jam, when you find yourself cornered, when you look around you and there is no way out and you're confused and don't know why this is happening, you have to lift up your eyes to your Heavenly Father and just start praising God. It's just that simple. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 28 to 31 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Praise God. Psalm 34, 1 to 5 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast to the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. Praise God. Now, just in case you're just joining us, just in case you may have had a mental lapse in the past couple of minutes and you're asking yourself, why should I praise God? What are some good old-fashioned reasons that I should magnify and uplift God Almighty? Here are ten reasons. Reason number one, you praise God because He is God. Because he is faithful, because he is true, because he is kind, because he will vindicate the righteous, and because his son came into the world for 
sinners. Reason number two you should praise God is because he answers prayers. Reason number three, because the trial you are in is not as bad as it would have had it not been for God. Reason number four, because the trial you are in is not as long as it would have had it not been for God. Reason number five, because when the trial pushes you down, God is the lifter of your head. Reason number six, because when everyone else left you defenseless, God is your shield. Reason number seven, because God sustains you even in sleep. Reason number eight, because God fights real enemies in real life. Reason number nine, because if it was up to you, because it was up to me, salvation would be lost. But the good news is that salvation is of the Lord. And reason number 10 is this. Because as sinners, we don't deserve anything. But Jesus Christ came into this world to give his life as a ransom for many and to seek and to save that which was lost. When Jonah found himself in his trial, and he was, figuratively speaking, in the belly of a trial, Jonah finally came to his senses. And what did Jonah do? He began praying to God, and then he began praising the name of the Lord. And that whale got indigestion. That whale got sick. That whale couldn't stand Jonah praising and praying to God Almighty, and that whale had to spit Jonah out. That trial had to let Jonah go. Because the way you triumph in trials is you have to pray your way out and you have to praise your way out. Third point. How do you triumph in trials? Number three. You ha- this is the third P. You have to plead your way out. You have to plead your way out. You're going to plead for yourself as well as others. The next verse says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. This is an urgent plea for divine protection. And it is specific and expresses what you want God to do about the situation. So number three, how do you triumph in trials? You have to plead your way out. That plea should be specific and express exactly what you want God to do about the situation. Now, to ensure your plea always falls in line with the revealed will of God. You're going to turn God's promises into petitions. Let's say that again. In order to ensure that your plea falls in the revealed will of God, you're going to turn God's promises into petitions. I'm going to give you an example. Isaiah 41.10 says... God speaks and says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is a promise. 
So we can now turn this promise into a petition by saying, for example, Lord, in your word it says you will strengthen me, that you will help me, and will uphold me by your righteous hand. Now hear my cry, O Lord, and humbly answer the prayer of your servant. Simple. You turn a promise of God into a petition. Now, the language David uses here, he says, Arise, O Lord. He doesn't use this language by mistake. This is language of war. This is the same language used in the book of Numbers, chapter 10. Whenever the people of Israel went out to war and they had the Ark of the Covenant in front of them, they would always say, Arise, O Lord, because they knew if God wasn't with them in battle, they would lose miserably. So when David makes his plea, when David makes his petition, he uses language of war. Because what's the next thing David says? For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. This is language of war because God is real. And God fights real enemies in real life. And the fact of the matter is, it must be said. God is not soft. God fights real enemies in real life, and there are the wicked who stand opposed to God's purposes. There are the wicked who stand opposed to God's law, to his morality, and to God's people. And the fact of the matter is, when God arises and encounters those who stand against him, God is not going to greet the wicked friendly with a hug. He's not going to greet them friendly with a flower and want to have a nice picnic on a green pasture. Because those who refuse to recognize that God is God, that God doesn't have to compromise because he is the creator and we are his creations, those that stand opposed to God's sovereign purposes will be smitten on the cheek. Because God is not soft. That's for the wicked. Now for God's people, the reassuring revelation is that God is not soft. God stands for something. God stands for his truth. God stands for his justice. God stands for his righteousness. So when you plead and call upon God to arise... David writes, he will shatter the teeth of the wicked. So all of those lions that gnash their teeth against you will soon be toothless. And they may bark, but they cannot bite. Because God is not soft. David closes the psalm by saying, salvation is of the Lord. This is the truth. Because salvation is of the Lord. And this truth is a direct contradiction to the lie his adversaries told him at the start of Psalm 3. They said, there is no deliverance for you from God. David counters the truth. He counters the lie with the truth and says, salvation is of the Lord. You don't decide where salvation comes. God does. And if salvation is of the Lord and eternity is set... 
Why should we tremble before the lesser physical dangers of life, however imposing or frightful they may be? Because you may be uncertain about right now, but forever is always certain, because salvation is of the Lord. Now this psalm closes by David saying, your blessing be upon your people. David began life as a shepherd, then he became a king. So this is the shepherd king now speaking. David is now making a plea. So the three ways we go from trial to trust to triumph. We have to pray our way out, we praise our way out, and we plead our way out. This pleading now is for others. And David says, your blessing be upon your people. Because David, as a shepherd king, has an interest in the well-being of the entire nation of Israel, has an interest in the well-being of all of God's children. But here's the interesting thing. The people who are revolting against David in Psalm 3 are who? The Israelites. Who are God's people? The Israelites. So when David prays, your blessing be upon your people, David is actually praying for some of those people who are even revolting against them. Because as a shepherd king, David realizes David isn't the end-all, be-all. He's not the center of God's universe. God is. So he wants to make sure there may be people in a dark season revolting against him currently. But he wants God to bring them to repentance. He wants, to bring, he wants God to bring them in order to see the light that they can magnify and glorify God. So David right here is praying for his enemies, those who are revolting against him. And the interesting thing here is that the opposite of fear is love. If David was consumed by fear, that is self-centered, but love is other-centered. So David, trusting in God, now has a sense of reliance and adoration. He has a shield of God being around him. Now his love for God, where he looks up, also causes him to do what? To look out at God's people. And he prays for all of those who are lost, that God can lift up by his good graces. History tells us that Psalm number 3 ended in triumph because although the psalm began by David fleeing from Absalom, biblical history tells us that Absalom eventually listened to bad advice and as a result, David escaped. He could restrengthen himself. He mounted up his forces and the one who eventually won was David. So what began as a trial moved through trust, and David was vindicated by God because it ended in triumph. Now I'll close by saying this, because the first step in going from trial to trust to triumph was trusting in relying on God by faith. That's the first step. And ultimately, a person will prevail in a trial only to the extent that they believe, only to the extent that they have faith in God. And such faith, when toughened and tested in the flames of adversity, results in victory and deliverance.
And that victory is always defined on God's terms. Now, I am but a man, so the best I can ever do is reach the back of your eardrums. It's going to take God to take this word and reach deep, deep down into your heart. Because it's one thing to hear about trial, but it's another thing to experience it, to live it. Because that's when all of these words are going to become real. And all of the meaning behind this language is going to have real life value. Because ironically, God is funny. Because crisis is the door that he uses so many times to enter into someone's heart. And what you'll realize in times of trial is this, that God often won't change your circumstance, but he will change you so that now your circumstance isn't going to fight against you. It's going to work for you. Because here's a little insight. The one person who remains constant in all of your trials in life is you. Your trials will change. Your circumstances will change. But you always remain constant. And that's who God works on. God didn't change the cross. God never changed the fact that his son, Jesus Christ, was tortured and hung on a cross for about six hours. And the lowest trial ever recorded in human history, the humiliation of God on the cross, the lowest, deepest, darkest time where there was no hope, what did God do? He transformed that low point, that low trial, into the greatest triumph the world has ever known, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we zoom out now and no longer look at trials as discrete moments in life, but we look at life itself as a trial, we find that death is a great equalizer. Death has always had a constant uh, rate. It's one death per person. The trial of life, you never make it out alive because it's a trial that you can never win by yourself. It's a trial of life that always ends the same way. But there's only one person who triumphed in that trial. There's only one person who is the victor over the great equalizer, who is Jesus Christ, who changed the grave, who changed a cave now until a tunnel. So now that trial is the entryway, is a transition point to triumph. So considering that Jesus is the only victor, the question I have for you today is, in the trial of life, who will you trust? Because there is only one way to triumph, Jesus Christ. Call upon him and him alone, and you shall be saved. Church, God bless you. Thank you for listening to this sermon by Dr. Sadafa. For more valuable content and resources, please visit wcsk.org.